guys. Good morning. Good to see you. Listen, uh, questions you never thought you could ask in church continues today. You know, last week, I didn't even get to half of the questions that were answered. You had such an outpouring of questions. It was incredible. And what I'm going to be doing today is batting cleanup on some of those questions that I couldn't hit last week. But I want to encourage you, open text line is in today because I'm going to be taking new questions as well. For those of you who are new to this, let me explain what's going on. Right now, I want to invite you to take out one of these. And on this screen, you're going to see a number, 815-314-0363. What we are inviting you to do is to text in any question that you have on God, life, theology, the Bible, Christianity, Christian history, the church, fellowship of faith. I will get them anonymously. I will get them in real time. And I will do the best job I can to answer them as forthrightly, succinctly, and honestly as I can right here on the spot. So I encourage you, start texting in your questions right now. Again, 815-314-0363. That's 3140-FOF. While you are doing that, let me start to bat cleanup on some of the questions from last week. Here's one. Why do we take communion every, sun, uh, every other Sunday rather than every Sunday? Fellowship of Faith began in 1999. I came in 2003. When I came, they shared with me, you know, we do communion here on the first and third Sundays of the month. And I went, cool. And there's no better reason than that. All right. Are spirits and demons real? Yeah. Yeah, if you believe the biblical witness, if you believe that Jesus was telling the truth and that his worldview is correct, he interacted and viewed the world as containing a spiritual realm with spiritual beings and entities that we can call spirits or demons or whatever other language you might want to give them. But yeah, a big yes to that one. Does FOF conduct infant baptisms? Yes, we do. Babies can't be baptized because they don't know they're sinners. I don't know if that's a question or a statement. I'm not really sure how to take that one, but I will just say babies can be baptized even though they don't know they're sinners, and it still pertains to repentance as well. So, all right. Does FOF allow non-Lutherans to take communion? You bet we do. All right. How do you distinguish the difference between God's way for you and what you are wanting to do or what you think he wants for you? And a related question, but separate, how do I know if it's God talking to me or if it's my own voice telling me what to do or the bean burrito I had for breakfast this morning out of control? Instead, you've been there, haven't you? Trying to discern God's will trying to figure out, is this just my own inclination or my own inner voice, or is God speaking to me instead? The simplest answer to this complex question is this. You've got to test the voices. You've got to test them. Just because it feels good doesn't mean it's of God. Just because it's what you want to hear doesn't mean it's of God. Just because it's what you don't want to hear also doesn't mean it's of God. And so God has given us a revelation called the Scriptures. And he wants us to test it against the revealed truth. And if anything stands in contradistinction to that, you know it's not of God. But God's given us two other things as well, the trifecta of testing the voices. The second is this, your conscience. 
God is hardwired in you an innate sense of right and wrong. And while we can sear that, distort that, and rationalize and listening to what you know to be right and wrong and how this stands in contrast becomes another important way to test the voices as well. But God's given you a third thing as well. And I'm going to give you the theological term, but it's so lame. It's called the church. But here's what it means. Other believers. Other believers who are also in tune with Christ in his way. And so if you're in a place of wrestling, getting the advice and wise counsel of wise, mature believers, both past in their writings and present around you, becomes important as well. See, there's no formula to this one. But God will lead and God will prompt and God will on a time speak and God, of course, gives us his word, but you have to test the voices. So, if you're here and you're struggling with that today, I've got good news for you. We've got a church right here that would love to speak into that. Come talk to me and let's see what we can kind of navigate together. All right? Let's keep going. Can Jesus choose punishment if necessary? You know, I got to be honest with you. I don't really know what you mean by this. Are you asking, can Jesus choose punishment on himself? Well, he did by dying on the cross. Can Jesus choose to punish us instead of forgiving us? Well, he's made a promise that he died for you and that his death will cover all of your sins. But he also says, I'll come to judge the living and the dead. And that's why the call to repentance becomes so important because repenting or throwing ourselves on God's mercy is what brings us from punishment to grace. So choose repentance and hopefully that fear will evaporate for you along the way. If God is one, when Jesus died, did the Father and Holy Spirit die too? No, they didn't because while God is one, God is also three. And the early church wrestled deeply with this. And they clearly came to what I believe is a true and sound scriptural interpretation that while Jesus being fully God died for you, the Father and the Holy Spirit did not. How about this? If someone has never heard of Jesus or God and they die, do they go to hell? People do not go to hell because they haven't heard of Jesus or God. People go to hell because they are unrepentant sinners. All of us deserve to go to hell, at least if you believe that all of us are sinners. You deserve to go to hell if you believe that you're a sinner. Jesus is a solution to the problem of sin not some kind of thing like you have to have heard of him. All right? I, I know there's follow-up questions that are coming, but I like to answer the questions as they're submitted. Do you think Jesus will be there at the moment of death? Yeah. Yeah. I really do. I really do. And if that moment is impending for you, or if you're in the aftermath of death right now, hold on to that, because that is good news. What does this church say about same-gender relationships? Understand, I'm going to answer the questions as they're submitted, okay? The Bible in this church has all kinds of things to say about same-gender relationships, and fundamentally, that same-gender relationships are good. Husband between, uh, relationship between father and son, Relationship between mother and daughter. 
relationship between siblings, relationship between friends. I think of the story of David and Jonathan in the Bible who had a commitment and a love for each other that went so deep. The Bible even speaks of it as transcending what a husband and wife would share together in their union. Deep levels of commitment and loyalty and friendship and trust and connection and love between people of the same gender is a beautiful God-created thing. It's just sad that in this generation, same-gender relationships or love is always equated with sex. But you didn't ask that, so I'm not going there. I have friends. Someone else asked this. (laughs) I have friends that are um, a gay married couple. And I bet, and I'm not going to do it, that if we were to raise our hands, every single one of us in here has friends or family members or an acquaintance of some kind where we're like, yeah, we're in the same place. Maybe you're in the same place here today. I respect their rights, but struggle supporting their rights and, and my faith. And how does our church approach this subject? Are they welcome here? How does our church approach the subject? You know, we believe that... Um, We're called to love people and love people like Jesus did. And there's a lot tucked into that phrase. We talked about that at 9 o'clock a little bit today. To love like Jesus did does not always mean our conception and perception of what love looks like or what love is. But to answer the question, how do we love them like Jesus did? How do we love any sinner like Jesus does, no matter what the issue is? How do we love everyone like Jesus did, no matter how much we disagree? I love how Jesus puts this. You know, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, you have heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do not even the pagans love their own? Aren't you better than they? No, love for those that you disagree with. Love for those that you're on the outs with. Love for those that you're diametrically opposed with. Love those who even hate you. That's the way of Jesus. But then sift his gospels to just see what that kind of expression of love looks like. And so what that means for us here at Fellowship of Faith, is our gay married couples welcome here? You better believe it. Are you gay? You're welcome here. Are you gay and married? You're welcome here. Because Fellowship of Faith is a church where all sinners are welcome, whatever the issue might be. And for time's sake, I'm going to leave that one there. You can text in more if you'd like is the commandment, Ten Commandments, right? Thy shalt, well, it's actually thou, okay? We, we take these word for word, so thy shall not kill, or, or thy shall not murder, it's neither, it's thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not murder, but the commandment is thou shalt not murder. The Bible, while calling killing and the taking of human life, is contrary to God's original design and what he never wanted to begin with, nonetheless is not always a sin. Murder is. And so a follow-up question from someone else is, if you kill an enemy in war, is it a sin? And the simple answer is this. It may be. It may be. 
It depends on more factors than you've given right here. All right? You can text in more if you'd like. Why do you think Islam is so popular despite its message being so different than Christianity? This is the non-researched, non-sociological answer. It is my gut feel, but I think it's right. I think we live in a post-Christian society because I think most people who claim to be Christian don't live the way of Jesus. And I think most institutions that claim to be rooted in the way of Jesus are anything but or have become so comfortable in a halfway approach that people who are looking for real transformation real truth that really affects their life and a high calling that we believe God gives have become so disillusioned with the machine that Christianity has become tired, rote, routine, and passe. How sad that we have taken the revolution Jesus started and turned it into this. And if Islam does anything well, it's this. It makes a high calling and it demands it. And you know what I found? People respond when the bar is set high. People want what the transcendent God could get, can give. And Islam, sadly, communicates that better than a lot of Christians today. I know there's other factors, cultural factors, sociopolitical factors, familial factors, birthright factors, and so many other things I can get into people rise to a challenge. It's just sad that Jesus gives the greatest one of all and we as Christians often minimize it. Do you think we are the only creation of God? To answer your question woodenly and straightforwardly and understanding we to be humans? Uh, No, I believe there's a lot more things created by God. I have a dog, for example. And um, there's material substances in this room that are not people. So flush it out. But no, I don't think we're the only thing that's the creation of God. That was satisfying, wasn't it? All right, let's see what we got. Questions are going to come in, and uh, it's uh, uploading. Whoa, we just exploded. All right. One of my favorite Bible verses is Romans 12, 18. Do all that you can, as far as is up to you, to live in peace with everyone. The whole chapter rocks. If you don't know it, read it sometime today. I've started to feel like this verse is asking me to sacrifice my own peace and joy to make sure everyone else is at peace. Is that what this verse is calling me to? Is it my fight as a Christian to sacrifice the gifts of peace and joy to ensure others experience them? Short answer is this. It may be. It may be calling you to sacrifice your own peace and joy out of love for someone else. This can easily devolve in a life of victimization, or easily get distorted and twisted into which you are never an integrated human being with your own thoughts and opinions that you are able to share because you feel like you are living at the whims of other people. That's not what I'm talking about here today. Understand that. But yes, as a Christian, you will be called to sacrifice your peace and joy at times. And the New Testament is filled with examples of this. For the betterment or out of love, 
for another human being. I'm sorry I could not give you the answer you wanted on that one. What is the non-simple answer to the question of whether it's a sin to kill in war? You know, killing is never good. Killing is never what God wanted. So at some level, choosing life over death should always be the way an individual, a government, a world should be going. But sometimes there are things worth fighting for. And sometimes, unfortunately, what needs to be fought for is a greater good. And to make it very specific, sometimes love for someone demands that I intervene to protect them, even at the cost, heaven forbid, of taking an assailant's life. You know, there is so much Christian literature written on the the subject of violence, self-defense, war and just war if he even exists and I encourage you if you're wrestling to get through to, to start reading some of that literature from multiple perspectives I can recommend some books to you after the service today but may I just caution you that even if you've been authorized by the state or the government to kill it's never a good thing but love for someone being oppressed might require it of you and Christians have wrestled with this for centuries fantastic question All right. What is your view on predestination? Um, I believe it's biblical. Read Romans 8, 28 through 32, Ephesians chapter 1 and other places. I also believe in free will. Would you give communion to someone knowing they are living in unrepentant sin? Um, Unknowingly, it happens all the time, of course. Um, But no. No, I, 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 I hope not. And The reason why is because it becomes a gesture of actual love to go to someone who is ardently living in unrepentant sin to say, you are flirting with the judgment of God. And to be in communion with him calls for your repentance. It's not out of some kind of harsh, you can't come here, or you're not welcome here, or we're not like you. No, we're so much alike, but God is calling you to something. And so, no, that's why the practice is not to do something like that. How about this? Did you get your shirt at Buckle or Old Navy? Okay, you got to ask my wife because I don't dress myself and I don't buy my clothes. I buy a shirt and I wear it till it disintegrates. So uh, she just told me it was Kohl's. Um, Yeah, sorry to disappoint. Would any part of this FOF land become a little cemetery for us? You ever see this with churches? Um, church my wife grew up in has a cemetery attached. We had a funeral earlier in Mount Prospect this year. Um, had the cemetery going back to 1840. They are just like the coolest things. And there's something I got to tell you I love about generation after generation being connected to a locale. But that being said, for some pragmatic reasons, probably not. In this day and age, the little I do understand of it, it has become just a zoning nightmare, a permit nightmare, and a logistical nightmare with how you function the church and has a way of taking over it. More so is this. I have found, um, and forgive me, those of you who have lived here lifelong, McHenry to be a transient community. That many people who live here today have not grown up here. 
And many of your kids who are grown up here are not going to stay here. And I think the idea of multi-generational church in parts of the country like this is quickly fading away where we can't really expect that people will know who grandfather's tombstone is out there because their kids aren't even here anymore. Kind of sucks, but it's the reality of the day and age we live in. Will Taco Burrito Express number two ever be open on Sunday again? You know, let me tell you how we got them to open that one Sunday in the AM. We had a message here called Gospel of the Bacon Taco and got them to make a whole bunch of tacos that we then like threw out to people in the service because like really, why not, you know? Um, Go talk to them and uh, when they get sales and advertising like that, you wouldn't be surprised what people would do, all right? What's the difference between kill and murder? Kill is simply the taking of a life. Murder is taking of the life contrary to the stipulations laid out by God. In the Old Testament law, you see stipulations for the taking of life given. Capital punishment, warfare under proper constraints, self-defense in certain situations where people are not guilty before God of shedding blood. So, while killing is never good, murder is violating the commands of God within the subset of killing. All right. Atheists believe God does not, does not exist. If an atheist asked you to prove your faith that God does exist, what is the best way to prove to them, within human limits, that God is real? The answer to this question really comes down to how you define the word prove. Because what I've found is that for many people, prove or proof is a knee-jerk word that, re- that means give me complete, total certainty that removes any doubt without any shadow of a doubt. And I'm just here to tell you today that such a thing in this universe does not exist for any belief system, including secular scientism. What I would share with your friend is that at some base level, everything is based on some level of faith. Scientism is based on the idea that all that exists is the material. How can you prove that? You can't. That's a leap of faith. That is a premise that is accepted at face value as an axiom that can't actually be proven. See, all of us, no matter what we believe, operate from a position of faith. So the question is not so much what can you prove and what you can't you prove. It's why do you put your faith in this system or this worldview? And what I would encourage you to do is begin the discussion there. Begin it is a discussion of presuppositions and worldviews, not what you can prove about Christianity on the defensive. Great question. If you can bat cleanup with these questions, why can't this lame? Why can't you bat cleanup for the FOF softball team? Okay. Let's get real here. Moment of truth. Because I was not 
invited. If you think people will come to church or people will come to Christ because they will read a bulletin announcement, you're fooling yourself. God calls you to be a witness and invite people. I wasn't invited. Great question. Oh, I like that one. <laughs> All right, I'm not taking that one next. <laughs> is there a Bible verse or verses that say abortion is murder? And why? Yeah, it's the fifth commandment, you shall not murder. Um, it's really what it comes down to. The question is this, do you believe that an unborn entity in the womb of a woman, you see what I'm trying to do here? Like I'm trying not to use the word baby, okay? Do you believe that a fetus is a human? And do you believe that it's alive? If you believe that it is a human and that it is also alive, it is therefore protected under God's canopy of you shall not murder. Now, if you can show that it's a donkey or a fish or something, then we have a different discussion going on. If you can show that it really isn't alive, we have a different discussion going on. But everything seems to indicate, no matter what persuasion or political um, um, point of view the doctor has, that it is a human and that it is alive and therefore it is sacred to God and made in his image. You know, there are other Bible passages that talk about, like, you know, John the Baptist was leaping in the womb. And, you know, you can read Psalm 139 about how God formed me together in the womb before you even know it. You know, you could do stuff like that, but it, to me, it's secondary. Is it a human? Is it alive? All right. Um, my gosh, they're just like flooding in. Okay, consider this your invite, please. Join the team. Would you like to play with us on the FOF softball team? Yeah, they're just kind of coming in here. All right, all right. I don't know if I can make it tomorrow, but if you come and personally invite me after this service and you play on the team, all right? We'll talk and I'll consider it. All right. What do you mean you weren't invited? I invited you two weeks ago. I don't know who you are. You're anonymous here. I don't even know who you are. All right, what's this one? All right, that's another, like, come play softball with us. All right. All right, consider this your invite. Yeah, all right, let's clear that out. All right, let's clear this one out. Love you guys rising to the challenge on this. Can I just encourage you? Be that moved for Christ, inviting people to his kingdom as well. All right. Um, that's another one. <laughs> All right, I'm going to let these reboot and let's get some more questions that we hit last week. All right? How about this? How do you respond to a coworker who went out of his way to get you fired? You hit him. You hit him hard right between the <laughs> eyes. Just, you make the blood drip. I, you know, joking aside, I do not envy you to get backstabbed or betrayed. It is just one of the hardest things. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. It's Jesus' words, not mine. I love how Paul expands on it, though. You know, if your enemy's persecuting you, bring him a cup of cold water to drink. If he hates you, Bless him. And he says, in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head, which sounds awesome, doesn't it? 
heap burning coals on our head. Don't bend over backwards. Don't pretend like everything's okay. Respond to evil with good, and it will kill you. And let shame and guilt and the conviction of God terrorize that person in ways that you could never come close to. It's sad that that kind of joy is what motivates us, but it does, isn't it? That's what I would do. So, this is a follow-up, I think, from last week. If my spouse and I are able to conceive but choose to use birth control to prevent that, you know, are we wrong? What is our church's view on birth control? I shared very briefly last week that the first command in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. And it's one that, you know, the first command um, and one that with the, the, the convenience and the ease of birth control that, that we've almost kind of divorced from sexuality and marriage today. But there is something very primal um, and, and there's a place of primacy. And God's calling all of us to be a part of that. But I don't think it has to be absolute either. I don't think this means have as many kids as you possibly can. Just keep being fruitful, you know? And when your wife hits menopause, trade up. No, no. Likewise, it is fascinating to me. Yeah, we're done here today, aren't we? You know, likewise, the Bible will talk about celibacy as a gift. It's the gift I don't want to have, but it talks about it as a gift, you know? And so what do you do with that? Likewise, you see Jesus, who wasn't married and didn't view his prime command as having as many kids as possible. So I guess what I'm encouraging you in this is this. Is it wrong to use birth control? Assuming it's not abortive. Assuming we're talking about non-abortive forms of birth control, and some are even though you don't know it. So research what you're using, but let's assume that it's not, no, I don't think you're called to have as many kids as possible. However, I think that some couples have so chosen their freedom, independence, and pleasure in life that they have turned a big blind eye to that thing over there as well of God's call to the blessing of procreation and family as well. I don't know where you're at, but there's a tension there. And I encourage you and your spouse to really wrestle through that seriously together. All right? Um, That's about the best I can do for this kind of format right now. God calls us to pray, but God knows what I'm thinking. Scary, isn't it? God knows what I'm feeling. Wow. And he knows my future. Crazy. So why pray? Besides the fact that God calls us to. Don't, uh, the second question is a follow-up to it. It was from a different uh, text in, but don't denigrate the fact that God calls you to it. That needs to be enough in the life of anyone who's a God follower. Sometimes we won't have reasons that go beyond simply this, God told me to. And if God tells you to, allow that to be enough in your life. If you, in fact, trust that he's good, does know your feelings, has what's best in mind for you, and knows things that may be in your limitations you just don't or can't, allow God's commands to be enough in themselves. Being said, because prayer isn't just about getting stuff, and it's funny, you could see throughout the Bible that God changes his mind. You know what the word it uses? I'm not making this up. I wish I was. That God repents. Read Genesis 6. 
God repents. Read the book of Jonah. God repents. Read Exodus 32. God repents. The calling out of people on God has an effect on him, even though he knows the future. I don't know how that works. But you see it attested again, again, again in the Bible, that you can sway the almighty power of the universe. Holy cow. I don't know if I want that kind of responsibility. You know what I'm saying? That's what he says. That's why we do it. Can I add one more thing on the list there too? We don't just pray to get things. We pray to talk to God. And sometimes we can just talk to him without it affecting the future in any way. Hey, God, good to see you today. God, I love you. God, thank you. God, you're amazing. God, I just want to gush on you for a while. God knows it, right? The people in your life who you love know it, but we still do it. So pray anyway. How about this one? Do you believe in a literal 24-hour, six-day creation? Um, Yeah, I do, actually. And a follow-up question. If you don't take a literal 24-hour approach, how do you explain death before sin? You're really hard-pressed to. If God is good and true to his word, would he really allow death and suffering before sin? The biblical worldview does not seem to allow it, even though a minority group of Christians who I respect deeply will argue that it is possible. It just doesn't seem to jive. Death seems to be the result of sin, not the result of naturalistic mechanisms that God has placed in the world. There's a great debate that can be had there, and we can get into that later if you want, but uh, I'll let that suffice for now. A lot of people lately seem to be using the Bible to justify their racism. Is that fair? No. Are you ever going to grow out your beard again? Yes. There are many different denominations of Christianity. Is there any denomination that is truly correct? Yes. <laughs> and let's go back to some of the live Protestants. What is the church's view on cremation? Um, our view is that you should only do it when the person is dead. This is one that we've actually had come in before and that we've wrestled with as a church together. Why is Neil Overbay so gosh darn attractive and perfect in every way? How is it fair? Um, Neil Overbay is on staff with us here. He's actually playing keys with us on worship today. And, you know, Neil Overbay is a hot, hot man. And uh, (laughs) the staff has really just wrestled with this before. Way to go, Neil. It isn't fair. It isn't fair. Would you ever sing or want to sing with the worship team? Why or why not? The question really should be, would you ever want me to sing with the worship team? You know what I would geek out on? I would love to do the choir sometime. I don't think I got the pipes. I actually had to sing a solo once on Christmas Eve. It was the most mortifying experience for the congregation, not so much for me. Um, It's just not my gift. But no, I actually really like to sing. And uh, encourage you, if you like to sing too, give the choir a whirl. All right? Um, did God poof into the universe and decide he was God and start making everything? Well, he did start making everything, but he didn't poof into the universe. It is one of these difficult concepts that I think we're unable to grasp. The scriptures declare that God always was. Like, you need a beginning, right? Well, apparently you don't. 
Somehow and in some way, God always was. And one of the things that makes him God and not us God is that he always was and we are created beings. I can't help you much more than that. How about this? Why must we wait to have sex after marriage? You don't have to wait to have sex after marriage. If you're married, have sex. All right? Did I misunderstand what you texted in on that? Why must we wait to have sex after marriage? Wait, until we're married? Okay, if you're married, have sex. God likes that. Okay? If you're not married, right? God wants you to wait to have sex. Um, Why? Because he tells you to. And sometimes the command of God, as arduous as it is, has to be enough. But it seems that embedded within the idea is simply that, that God created sex to be an expression within the context of marriage, which means things like fidelity, faithfulness, lifelong commitment, and even though divorce is rampant today and, and marriages fall apart and break down and things like that, nonetheless, it's another way God is saying, no, this is something so good, so sacred, so holy, and has such an effect on a relationship that it needs to be guarded and preserved within this special, unique expression alone, not as a bad thing from God, but as a good thing, even though it is so hard in the meantime. Um, (laughs) the coffee bar staff would like you to know that we have lots of delicious treats. Please stop by and fill a plate before you go home. (laughs) Shout out for the coffee bar today. All right. All right. (laughs) 198 days till Christmas. Are you ready? No. No. Not in any way whatsoever. What does the Bible say about remaining married to an abusive spouse? You know, it's actually silent on the matter. It doesn't speak explicitly to that situation, but let me just unpack briefly today how the Bible does speak about divorce and remarriage. Contrary to what most Christians think, the Bible is a lot less concerned with divorce than it is with remarriage. Let me walk you through. Jesus says that if someone is to divorce their spouse and marry another, they commit adultery. So if you divorce your spouse legally and marry someone who isn't that spouse, in God's eyes, it's viewed as adultery, breaking what was meant to be that as long as we both shall live, commitment. Jesus gives one exception. The exception he gives is marital unfaithfulness. If your spouse has in some way sexually broken that relationship already. Maybe even that meaning remarrying before you did. Now, that's all Jesus says to the matter. But Paul picks up on it and takes it a little bit further. And he goes, you know, I know that's what Jesus said. This is 1 Corinthians 7. You can read it for yourself. But you know, this is what I got to say. And Paul actually words it in the Bible. The Lord doesn't say this. I got to say this. That if your spouse wants to leave, let him do so when you're free. Let her do so and you're free. If your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, because in Paul's mind, a believing spouse would never leave a believing spouse. But if your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, you are also free. 
but it doesn't speak to this situation. Now, the Bible does seem to allow for divorce in more situations than that, but that doesn't mean it allows for remarriage again. You may be in a situation here where your safety or the safety of your children demands that you get out. Get out. Like killing, divorce is never what God intended from the beginning or wanted, but he wants you safe. And if someone has become that, you've got to get out. But here's the question you also got to ask yourself. Am I rationalizing abuse? This is very politically incorrect what I'm going to say right now, but it needs to be spoken about. I have counseled more couples who have labeled their spouse as abusive simply because they wanted to have a reason to divorce and remarry another. No one should ever be hit by their spouse. And I believe firmly that, that emotional and verbal abuse are real things. But I have seen people call their spouse abusive simply because they got angry once and lost their temper without any threat or physical violence on them. I'm sorry, that's not abuse. But if you can't tolerate that, you can choose celibacy instead. But it does not free you to marry another. So that's something you'll have to wrestle through in this. I don't want to be insensitive to the situation you find yourself in. So if you'd like to talk more, please come talk to me if this truly is something more than just theoretical. And I'm looking at the clock and I'm out of time again. There are more questions waiting. The bad news is we're not going to get to them today, but the good news is if we haven't gotten to them so far, um, we got next week yet. So I invite you to come back next week. If it was a 10.30 question, we'll answer it at 10.30, and we'll lead the way by answering it again. 